0: Just a quick warning up front that this episode is going to feature pathologizing body language, it's not my own, and it will mention illness including eating disorders. So please take care of your needs when deciding whether to listen or not. Recently a client shared with me that they've not binged in weeks after binging like their whole adult life. They've been thoroughly and consistently moving their body, like enjoying doing it for a few weeks. And they booked a surf lesson after seven years of not going into the water because they didn't think that their body should be in the water or seen at the beach. And I'm curious what you might think is the key shift that happened for them, especially considering that in this episode, right now, we're talking about what you need to know about Hays part two. Do you have a guess? I know I can't hear you, but throw out your guesses. So this is the thing, that client felt supported to stop making their body weight a problem. They stopped pathologizing their body weight. And instead, they felt supported to draw on the resources and abilities that they naturally have. And they felt supported to view their health holistically and individually. And this is what happens when we stop incorrectly claiming that weight is health we empower humans to support themselves in meaningful ways to them. I'm Nadia Felsch, nutritionist and intuitive eating counselor. In this podcast, we explore the practical aspects of leaving the diet mentality behind and finding your own food and body freedom. So in this episode, I'll be diving into part two of what you need to know about Hayes. This is the final part. If you haven't listened to part one, you need to. No skipping it. Need to go back. You need to get the groundwork in. In this app it'll be a little bit more focused on lived experience so humans who didn't receive weight neutral or haze aligned care and what that looks like in their healthcare journey across two different conversations and I also chat with an endocrinologist a-, a medical doctor about their shift into a haze practice which is super encouraging so let's kick off this this chat this part 2 with my conversation with Amanda Lee amanda is a human that i came across as did like millions of other people about a year ago in early 2021 so amanda is an actress a photographer and activist and in this chat together we cover the viral tiktok the one that i saw last year and how that led to like her whole life changing the very dangerous the very real reality of weight stigma that you posted a TikTok from your car after you'd visited a GI doctor, a gastroenterologist. I wonder if you could start just by sharing what that video was, what you shared in that video.
1: Yeah. Uh so basically for a couple months I was really sick. Um and I was struggling to eat and um I just had a lot of lower abdominal pain and the only thing I can kind of relate it to is kind of like period cramping. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of lower lower abdominal pain and I was struggling to eat. And so I finally found a doctor who can see me in person and, you know, during COVID. And so I I go in and this doctor, um, when he asked me what I was eating, I told him I wasn't eating anything. Mm -hmm. And he said, maybe that's a blessing. And then, um, when I asked him to repeat himself, he said, I said, I'm sorry, like, what did you say? And he said, yeah, I said, maybe that's not such a bad thing. And I sat in the rest of this, you know, uh, consultation with this, this GI asked him if he was going to run any more tests and which he said he wasn't going to, um, and as soon as he wrote my prescription, I pretty much grabbed my prescription and I left. and I something in me was telling me that it was wrong. Um, like something just felt like I wasn't taken care of. I wasn't treated well. But in the back of my head, this is such a common experience being told that I should starve or not eat is so common, right? Like, Oh, haha, you're sick, you're not eating, that's fine. That's acceptable. You know, even when you get the flu, and you, you get really sick, you know, obviously, you make a comment about your weight, we're like, Oh, at least I'm losing weight. No, that is unacceptable. You that that shouldn't be the case. Like that shouldn't be the butt of the joke is at least I'm skinny, but malnourished. Like, You know what I mean? Uh, The fact that we have, as society, has kind of crossed over this, the distance, the situation between what is skinny and what is healthy. And, but I digress. So um, I ended up filming that video in my car. And um, I was just really alone. And that's basically why I filmed it. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I went back into the doctor's office after. Uh, I filmed the video and I asked for an apology and he uh, failed to give me one.
2: Mm.
1: And so um, after that, I did find a new GI and she is a wonderful badass of a female. Um, And she found that it was stage three colon cancer. Mm. So.
0: So this, I, what I imagine is this, incredibly tough thing to hear from from the new doctor how did you feel in context of that previous experience
1: I was a mess I when I drove to that second doctor I was a disaster I pretty much cried the entire way there Uh, every time I I have to talk to a doctor, even how common it is. If it is a new doctor, I will never go alone. I'm always hysterically stressed and it is um, unfortunately, I think it's like a state of panic trauma that I'm probably going to have to hold on to forever. Uh, And I think what's sad is that this is how I felt. And I, felt that way battling cancer and I still feel that way going into the doctor's office and I'm barely mid-sized right Mm. like I hate to use the phrase mid-sized um but you know so it's I just can't imagine what those uh women who go into the doctor's office who just are at their wit's end and feel so sick and who aren't being heard right like I luckily was heard So, but what happens if you're not a size 14 or a 16, what happens if you're a size 24? Are you not going to be heard? Have you not been heard? And, you know, I think that it, it is a serious thing that we need to actually look at and point at and say, okay, so we, and I'm saying this like as a, as a fat woman, I have always accepted that my doctor will just call me fat. And that is the end of it. Like it is a joke in my household. My mom has, he she's deaf in her left ear, and so she goes into the doctor and talks about like, oh my ear's hurting again. You know what do I do? And then they're like, oh lose weight. Right. It's like standard. that yeah. Yeah, standard, right? So like you care more about her weight than you would her ear pain. Mm-hmm. When my family has a a a history of brain tumors. So it's just, you know, again, I I just repeat what happens and what has happened to thousands, thousands of women, millions of women in the past, present and future who go into the doctor's office and who get ignored and they don't get to like, they don't get to sit here and tell them, tell their story. You know, Mm -hmm. I do. is it?
0: Am, am I correct, Amanda, that your cancerversary remi- like is coming up? Is
1: that is that is that the word? You yes, can- yes. So I just had my cancerversary. Oh. Um It was last Monday, and it was. Um, I found out I was colon cancer. I found out I had colon cancer in colon cancer amer- awareness month, which is March. That's so, so I was really excited to kind of have my cancerversary also be like a okay. I need to celebrate the day, opposed to. You know, uh, you know, instead of having a day where I'm just sitting in my bed crying. But yes, it was it's nice to it's nice to say that I I am away from it and I'm in remission. Um, It's just incredibly frightening to see what my life looks like now because it's so different than it was a year ago. You know,
0: Uh, I'm thrilled you're in remission. This is very exciting. And I'm curious about how you found, so there was this stigmatizing, unfortunately, not the only one you'd ever had from what you're sharing, just yet another stigmatizing experience that was higher stakes in some perspective, right? Um, and when I say some perspectives, because they're all messed
1: up. Yeah. Like, oh, 100%. None, none of them are be happening. Be. Right?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you've also been navigating the healthcare system. With your tumor treatment, right? So, like, I'm curious, how did you continue to face weight stigma constantly?
1: Um, you know, I think that I'm going to be really honest with you. I will always face weight stigma, mm-hmm. um, uh, and uh, probably until the day I die. Unfortunately, I don't think that that's going to change anytime soon, or in my lifetime. Hopefully, in my kids' lifetime, um, but. That is something that is just I'm going to have to deal with on a daily basis. I do get um, kind of harassed on the Internet for being overweight and being a very vocal, um, very empowered woman online, which is fine. You know, and I, I guess my theory is, is like I beat cancer, I can beat anything um, <laughs> but troll it, compared to cancel. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's, it's honestly, sometimes, sometimes they, if they kind of attacked, attacked my character, then I get offended. Right. Um, or I take it very personally, like that's not what I meant or mm-hmm. let's kind of like talk about this or arguments, things like that. But if, you are coming on my page, which a lot of times people do come on my page and just be like, "Oh, you're obese, you're fat, that's why you had cancer, you should die." Um,
0: <laughs> like it's it's literally the that yeah. that's the yes most-
1: yes yeah like uh, yeah that actually happened like a couple days ago, and I literally just just like turned my head sideways like, "Oh wow, yeah, you're you need you need help." Like and that's the thing is. To the way I look at it is that they're sitting on their couch Mm -hmm. texting that, and to them, they have no idea that on the other end it is someone's life, you know. Um, but yeah, so it's fine, I do fine with it, I can take care of, you know, handle myself, but yeah, it's a it is rampant, and I think that unfortunately, like the day to day language about fat phobia only perpetuates it in the medical field because people or vice versa it's kind of like a catch-22 because people think it's acceptable to shame people for being fat because it's unhealthy and because doctors or because mm. science or because you know whatever they're filling the blank with whatever you know um medical jargon that is currently being used uh and being practiced so i mean there is something called hazed, h-a-e-s, H-A-E-S um and uh and i'm you're shaking your head yes i'm like i know you know um haze stands for health at every size and basically it is to encourage doctors and uh to just serve patients at every size no matter what they look like it's like a it's like a a a devoid of bmi I guess you can say right. Like, let's actually use science-based studies for our um, our uh, medical practice.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Let's let's treat the whole person. Let's treat what's going on. Let's treat conditions because we have all this amazing medicine and science and yeah. knowledge. Let's let's use that more appropriately. It's not that hard.
1: A hundred percent. A hundred percent.
0: I'm so sorry that you were on the receiving end have been and to your point you said I think I'm going to be facing this the stigma of like this won't change you know uh I also like that I heard your hope that a next generation may not may maybe these conversations collectively
1: uh, yeah are that, are that change is that how you see it as well Oh, 100%. I think that even if, right, because my entire platform is fighting fat phobia in the medical field, right? Unfortunately, where does that start? That starts by raising our children properly or having those difficult conversations. And I think what really gets me is that, you know, it is, you know, it, when you fight fat phobia in the medical field, you are fighting You're fighting, you know, this stigma that has been around for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. So you were trying to literally rebuild the system. And what you need is allies who kind of have your back. And in order to have that, you need to have conversations about this, about people like you where I can sit down and, uh, you know, uh, people who are willing to listen Mm -hmm. and say, oh, wow, this is actually a situation in our our world, I'm not going to say country, but this is a situation yes, right. in our world. Yeah. And this is this is a giant issue and it starts by just addressing it at home. You know, talking about food appropriately and discussing it in a healthy way in front of your children mm-hmm. or discussing it in a healthy way to yourself. Because at the end of the day, you know, if you are perpetuating, if you're saying fat phobic comments, then what the hell are you saying to yourself? Mm. Holy goodness gracious. Like you cannot be kind to yourself if you think that you could say those things to another person. And, and that, and, uh, you know, I will have a million conversations like this, if that means that, I get one step closer to one more person being listened to or treated the way that they should be treated, which is just like a normal human being. I love
0: that. I'm I'm here for it as well. Thank you. I've talked on this pod before about how frequently and dangerously weight stigma shows up in eating disorder treatment, and it's not to say that that weight stigma alone causes EDs. Of course not, but it also doesn't support anybody's recovery. So for instance, and I again, I've talked about this on a whole episode, atypical anorexia nervosa is anorexia nervosa in a fat body. So that we even call it atypical is everything you need to know. We actually have, well, we don't because I'm not there, but in the UK there is an eating disorder organization, like a charity called BEAT. They work kind of with the NHS healthcare system over there, They still refer to bodies as obese. They talk about weight management as a concept. Go back to part one if you need to think about what that means. Whilst in the same breath, they say eating disorders come in all bodies. Like they can't seem to see that they are contributing to that by even speaking about bodies like that. And yes, eating disorders absolutely come in all bodies and they are all equally very serious. So to explore the lived experience of non-haze eating disorder treatment, you know, how it feels to have body size, your body size pathologized so early in your life and what the consequences of that are, I am going to be chatting with Sharon Maxwell, a speaker, fat activist, and future social worker. What is your earliest memory of your body size being appropriated to your health? What is that memory?
2: I have one distinct memory and then um which involves a doctor's office. Um and also I was prefacing that with there was already a culture that I was around um in the environment I was raised in, where women were supposed to look a certain way in order to be pleasing to Mm -hmm. men and but also yet like still uh, sweet and like not luring men, but it's just a weird mind fuck. Um, and really (laughs) gross, honestly, quite disgusting. Um, so I had this picture of what I was supposed to look like, and I have lived in a fat body my entire life. And so I never fit that mold. So that's, I always knew that I was not quite making the mark there. Um, but as far as like my health, Um, So when I was in third grade, um, I and a classmate of mine consistently got tonsillitis and shrub throat. It was like clockwork. Every Mm -hmm. few months we Mm -hmm. kept getting it. And um, I went to the doctor with my mom and um, the doctor came into the office and the first thing we ever did when the nurse brings you back is stand on the scale and then you go into the room and they take your blood pressure and you know temperature and all those things and The doctor walks in and tells my mom doesn't even acknowledge me or look at me speaks directly to her and says that um she needed to put me on a diet and that i needed to start losing weight when i came because i had fucking strep throat <laughs> and that's the very first thing the doctor comes in and, and addresses and I remember leaving and feeling so so much more shame about my body. Um, our bodies were like shamed in the environment and like showing anything about our body, all of that in the environment I was raised in. It was our bodies were to be very much like completely covered and all of these things. And at the same time, I had not felt like shame to that level. Like I was wrong. I needed to be fixed. Not only did I need to be ashamed of my body, but I also needed to be fixed. Well, I went to school and my classmate um, told everyone that she was going to be getting her tonsils removed. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe if I get it again, they will remove my tonsils on repeat. I consistently go back every three to four months, tonsillitis or strep throat. And the doctor consistently made my weight and my body size, the topic of our conversation, Um, and I know your, your question is like, when was the first time, like I experienced that, but if we just put a teeny pause and like, say if I, if you look out like 16, 17 years later, I'm still going through this cycle Mm -hmm. of having tonsillitis every three to four months. Mm -hmm. And, um, at this point, (laughs) I used to joke that my uninfected tonsils were the size of like Texas and California combined, which are like massive states in the United (laughs) States. Um, And they just hanging out in the back of my throat. And like when they were uninfected, because each time I got ill, Mm -hmm. my tonsils never went fully back to their original size. So when I was sitting in the dentist chair, they would have everybody come look and see how big my tonsils were. Like it was like, Oh wow. Like, like they were massive. Like I have a photo, which is odd, (laughs) but, um, somewhere, I don't even know if I still have it, but, um, I had this magnifying glass and I was showing a friend and we were laughing about how large my tonsils were. Well, when I was in my early twenties, I got another bout of tonsillitis like clockwork, but that time, um, my tonsils became so swollen that they completely closed off my airway. And I was sent emergently to the hospital, woke up with assistive devices to allow me to be able to breathe because of the weight stigma that I had experienced at the doctor for 16, 17 years, and no one ever taking like and, and, and taking my tonsils out. <laughs> mm-hmm. I now stayed in the hospital for five days until my tonsils were uninfected into the point where they were small enough where I could breathe without the assistance of, um, medical devices. Mm -hmm. And then they scheduled my surgery to remove my tonsils. (laughs) So yeah, third grade, but that third grade thing caused lasting impacts, not only on my own image of myself, but also on the health of my body I was on antibiotics every few months I was paying co-pays every for my parents were and then I was as an adult every few months at the doctor's office and um simply because my body wasn't the size of my classmates so and so this this
0: occurrence at, at you said grade three is that right mm-hmm. when this yes I mean to to hear the longevity of just that one aspect of your experience just one right let's kind of be clear the i i mean there there really are no words i i can't it it seems stupidly absurd at the yeah. at the bare minimum like <laughs> like that's just the entry point <laughs> okay yeah wow let's let's I don't want to make assumptions so you shared Sharon that you were socialized in an environment where you I believe you said you you were already conscious your body didn't fit the mold that you'd been socialized to kind of feel was acceptable what was required of of you mm-hmm. and then these experience this early experience of it being linked to an actual health concern unreasonably unfairly and then kind of that that conversation it sounds like started of this needs to be fixed is is how you kind of yeah you, would you say that at that point and, and maybe it wasn't conscious I'm, I'm mindful that grade three is, is still itty bitty baby you really yeah <laughs> but that doesn't mean the impact isn't considerable as well I guess do you remember if there was a change in at that point, or later on, how you behaved and felt about your body existing in this world in general—like, did did it start at that point for you?
2: So, Nadia, it really started the year before that, where I started exhibiting what m- my team and I would say is when my eating disorder began. When I was in second grade, okay. um, but it was more a lot of hiding and binging on foods and things like that, and really being just like fearful of eating in front of people and things along that way. But then after that doctor's appointment, and then when I was put on um, my first diet shortly thereafter, um, my first non-consensual diet, <laughs> I started actively restricting and trying to change my body. And I, uh, my body is trying to grow and develop. And yet I wanted it to shrink and I wanted it to become smaller. Um, and that became something that um, I focused on. Mm-hmm. And I was good at a lot of things, but my body consistently seemed to negate the things that I was good at. And it would always take away from, or like diminish from um, the things that I could do. And I wasn't seen as like, I wasn't seen as me because my body. Wasn't, I mean, I was but I was seeing through this lines of like um, someone who just wasn't able to like, have enough self-control, discipline, all of these things as a third grader. (laughs) Um, It's also absurd to look back at photos of me when I was a child. Wasn't that, and not even that being large is a problem, but I wasn't even in that large of like Mm -hmm. body. My body wasn't that much drastically different than my classmates, but it was just enough that it put me into this category of just, um, something that needed to be fixed
1: yeah, in order
2: to then be good enough. So yeah, my behavior definitely changed and escalated as I grew older, but mm. there was definitely a shift.
0: Can you share what occurred to you when you entered an AD treatment center? Um, and I believe that you've referred to this on social media as this is a, this is a significantly big center that you were speaking about online.
2: I. Thankfully did not start at that eating disorder treatment okay. center it is the US's largest treatment center. I started at a really small eating disorder treatment center in Arizona. And initially when I went, I agreed because I thought that they would eventually help me lose weight. And I did not believe that I had an eating disorder and I laughed at my doctor. Um, and then I, my body, I was not medically stable and I needed to go to residential care. And so I did. And it was while I was at residential care that I had, people who really started to show me like, Sharon, no, you do have an eating disorder. And I started to have some acceptance. Um, and then I ended up moving across the U S from one end of the country to the other. And at that point I still needed care. I needed to be at uh, partial hospitalization, PHP level. And so I found this treatment center in the city Mm -hmm. that I was moving to.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And when I showed up Of course, before you go, you have to do an intake over the phone. So they get a full history of you, right? And it was like an hour and a half, at least, long phone call. They had all of that from me. And then then they received all of the, I signed all the release of information. And they received the documentation from both treatment centers I had been at before. I showed up on day one. And um, I was taken to a room to um, receive orientation. So one of the staff members walks in sits down with me and tells me the rules and regulations, la, la, la. And then goes, now um, you're going to stay in this room and um, we will um, come get you when it's time to eat. And I said, okay. And I said, as um, there like groups going on? Like what's happening? And she said, well, in the room next to you is where the people with quote, and I kid you not, normal eating disorders. What is a normal eating disorder? What but is it fo- a normal eating disorder? <laughs> No such thing, but the folks with normal eating disorders are in the room next to you and you're on a different track. Um, and you'll be on a different track in a different, in different rooms and in different groups so that your eating disorder doesn't trigger them. And I just sat speechless. Yeah. What the fuck? Exactly. And I didn't say anything at that point. Again, I was, this was in September. I was diagnosed with an eating disorder, went to treatment almost four years ago now. So March, April, May, June, July, August, September. So I guess it was six months into treatment, right? I had started to learn about weight stigma. I had started to learn about fat shaming and just like, all of these things. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, what the actual fuck is going on? And then they come get me and tell me it's time to go into the kitchen. And I go into the kitchen and I kid you not, Nadia, all the other individuals are seated at a table already. Their backs are to me and I'm told, okay, you'll prep over here. And like, it's really hush out. You're going to prep over here in this little spot. And then we're going to have you sit at this table over here. And I said, well, why wouldn't I sit with everybody else? And they said, oh, well, the individuals with normal eating disorders sit over here and you're going to sit at this table. And I was like, so at that point I'm like over it. And I'm like, what do you care to tell me what a normal eating disorder is? First of all, I don't even know what eating disorder you think I have, but like, you're putting me at a table by myself. Um, like, what did I do wrong? Like, I don't understand. And this girl poor poor person getting so like, she's just doing what she was told to do, but she was getting so like worked up. And so we sit down at the table to eat. I'm sitting there. She's watching me eat. Everyone else is back to, to me. And, um, so welcoming. she's like, wow. what's that? So welcoming. Uh-huh. So welcoming. I know. Right. Welcome. We're going to help you. We're so glad you're here. <laughs> I'm literally the fat kid in the corner eating by myself, which I didn't, I was so, I was so triggered by their responses and the way they treated me that I just sat there and I could not I could not eat I totally just sat there and so in the middle of the table (laughs) never forget they had these little like icebreaker questions and games to try to serve it I mean I guess there's a place for them she She picks up this little sandwich baggie that had these constru- pieces of cut construction paper with like questions on them. She starts like trying to rapid fire, asking questions. And I just didn't say a word. And I was like, I need to see my, th- whoever my therapist is. I need to see whoever my therapist is. She was so uncomfortable. So I meet with my therapist and I'm like, first of all, what is happening here? What is a normal eating disorder? What eating disorder do you think I have? And tell me how it is any less normal than any other eating disorder. And, She was like, well, you're on the binge eating disorder track. And I was like, okay, well, first of all, I don't have binge eating disorder. Secondly, how is binge eating disorder any different or something that needs to be ostracized from all of the other eating disorders? Like, why am I being put in a corner by myself facing away from with our backs to each other, the other people with quote, normal eating disorders. So my therapist tried to like validate my experience and told me I would have to talk to the program director. Okay. I go, so I go into the program director's office and I go through the same exact thing. And they eventually realized that they had the wrong somehow mistaken my diagnosis, um, which I don't know. How it happened, what happened. But like you're literally taking the binge eating disorder track and putting them in the corner and making them eat by themselves, putting them in a room by themselves. It's nothing but shaming the fat kid in the corner. Absolutely. And this is not me saying that people with binge eating disorder are fat because people with binge eating disorder come in all body sizes. But what the fuck?
3: <laughs> Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Uh,
0: who whoever might experience that? How is any of that healing or therapeutic
2: or yeah what if I had binge eating disorder and experienced that? Like, are you telling me that I need to be ashamed of coming in to get help for my, my eating disorder? And that mine is like inferior to the other eating disorders. Like we're literally giving a hierarchy at that point to eating disorders
0: triggering or to the so-called normal eating disorders.
2: Yeah. So-called normal. Which, if we take a sec a second and like take a step back, binging occurs because we rest- from a restrictive mindset. Mm-hmm. So, if you're going to take all of these quote unquote normal eating disordered folks who have restrictive eating disorders or uh, binging purging eating disorders, but mm-hmm. also restrict, you know, whatever compensatory eating disorders, and you're putting them over here, it's the same fucking thing over here we're just in a cycle of restricting and binging and we're living in this restrictive mindset. So how it makes zero sense, make it make sense. I mean,
0: I I don't want to get too sciencey here, but neurobiologically it makes no sense. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a therapist, not pretending to play one, but I, I know a little about neurobiology. That's not, that's not how that works. You're just
2: creating more stress response yeah it's a no from me it was not okay and you, that was just one experience in that treatment center or like the weight stigma was so horrific there
0: have you like is your experience echoed by others lived experiences in in the space that you've the folks you've come to know through your activism it, you know whether it's ed related or not
2: it, it is yeah, is it echoed? Unfortunately, yes. Mm. Um, not just for folks living in in larger bodies. I will say also for the male population, for um, our LGBTQ plus community, um, the underrepresentation of um, for for people of color. Um, I mean, it's just it's the amount of harm that happens in a place where we're supposed to come get help Mm. is astounding. Um, It is horrific. Um, And it's something that I have paid hundreds and hundreds, thousands, probably at this point of dollars in therapy, undoing harm, working through trauma that I received at a place That I was supposed to go get help for my trauma and my eating disorder. Again, make it make sense. And it's something that I have heard echoed time and time and time again by individuals. And I think it's a systemic problem within treatment centers um, worldwide, from what I've heard. Um, And uh, we have the stereotype in our society of the thin, white, young, emaciated fluent girl that's that's the look this I mean, so gendered sure. girl yeah like the, goes, to start with right like there's a look and it's shameful it, it, for me and for whatever I heard for other people walking into a treatment center and you are like the one or the two fat or mm-hmm. male or queer or mm-hmm. people of color like walking into treatment center and you're, you're it's into a treatment center not like other people don't deserve the help as well but it's not like fat queer disabled people of color like aren't in aren't experiencing eating disorders Absolutely. yeah the lack of resources the it, it's just it's it's such a systemic problem you need to get ready these are
0: actual comments from my tiktok like actual Point for, like, quote, you can go find them. So when I shared mm, a few months ago, I shared, hey, this is why I practice from a health at every size perspective because of the harm of the weight centric model on all people, particularly fat people. So these are quotes. I had bariatric surgery after my doctor advised it because of chronic back pain. I'm in a smaller body and I'm still in pain. How fun. That's number one. The second one. I have to go to the doctor next week and I'm scared. The third one, it took doctors forever to find out I have autoimmune arthritis and it's not caused by my weight. I was denied knee surgery to fix debilitating pain because I'm fat. Doctors hate fat people. They want us to die to be skinny. Wow. And the last comment, I went to the doctor for mental health concerns. She told me about weight loss drugs. I didn't mention my weight. So in the last interview for this episode, I'm going to be chatting with endocrinologist Dr. Gregory Dodell about what's missing in the weight-centric approach, say, like when we're treating type 2 diabetes, so common, and and, and what is the difference from his perspective as a doctor when it comes to the Hayes approach compared to that kind of weight-centric model when it comes to managing all kinds of endocrine conditions. And FYI, if you're not quite sure what an endocrinologist does, I mean, diabetes is a giveaway. They help with the endocrine system, which is lots of different things, lots of different conditions, the hormones in our body. And guess what? If you, like me, have PCOS, that's what an endocrinologist does. So this is a really important conversation where PCOS and weight are literally mentioned in the same damn breath. What are some of the the most common conditions that people might come to you for support with?
3: That's a great question because if I'm ever out at a party or anywhere else (laughs) and I'm like... Yeah. They're like, what do you do? I'm like a doctor. I'm like, what kind of endocrinologist? And they're like, blank face. And I'm like, diabetes and thyroid and nutrition and osteoporosis okay. and PCOS. So I mean, people just don't know. And the short answer is like hormones, the endocrine system. Mm-hmm. And uh and that's what it is. And what I love about it is, is that it really impacts the whole the whole body. It's not just, you know, one one organ system. So yeah. I mean, I love what I do and it and it's cool and it's a great field in my biased opinion of course.
0: I I agree it's a very I mean all specialties are obviously very important but I so agree that the the fact that it isn't organ system kind of centric it is the whole body Um, and I guess from that person-centered approach or or whole person-centered approach to health it impacts someone's whole quality of life potentially as well or their whole way of being so you mentioned just before, and I think that's possibly where people are most familiar with the endocrine system. Uh, so let's take type two diabetes as an example. I'm really curious, and and I'm sure I'll learn something here as well. How might I feel like I'm asking you such a loaded question? I'm kind of like second guessing myself. But yeah, go for it. So how spit might, it out,
3: and I'll do yeah my just best.
0: okay. You right. just shoot it back. So just go for it how might type two diabetes be managed in the traditional kind of weight centric approach that we have in healthcare and medicine?
3: Yeah. I mean, I love this question because I don't feel that I practice treating diabetes that differently than people who are more weight focused, except I just look at true behaviors like we talk and hear about all the time. So movement and pairing foods and getting sleep and managing stress, all the same medications, I just take weight out of the equation. Yeah. So someone who's weight focused obviously is going to see a patient say, well, if you lose weight, your blood sugar and your A1C and all these these markers are going to get better. Yeah. And we know that from research, a lot of times focusing on weight or the majority of the time, that's not sustainable. Um, so you see a lot of weight cycling that goes on, which again the research shows is metabolically detrimental. And then that also introduces the weight stigma component to it, which we also know is is detrimental for the management of health conditions and mental and physical well-being. So I choose to say, and I learned this from you know Instagram and reading all the great research papers, that weight is not a behavior. So let's mm-hmm. focus on the behaviors. The weight may change as a result of behaviors, or it may not. Cool, whatever, but my my goal is for someone to hopefully control the blood sugar and the diabetes to prevent complications, and that that's what we're looking to do. It,
0: what kind of strikes me is the overwhelming simplicity, and yet let's be really kind of frank that in the kind of wider context of this conversation, it, it isn't viewed as such as just, okay, cool. Let's look at, I guess I want to be mindful that I I didn't hear you say this and I know you wouldn't say this. And I know I also wouldn't say this, that there isn't an aspect of, I believe how you worded it, let me know if I misheard this, was I kind of place weight to the side or I, I don't focus, right? And I think what's important and I, I'm so glad that that was kind of there, is that this isn't a rejection of that as a reality of someone's existence or possible relationship aspect, right? That I feel like there is such, like, do you, do you find that as well? There's such a, oh, well, how can you say weight doesn't matter? That's kind of like what you just said. I know folks would hear, oh, well, this doctor's saying weight doesn't matter.
3: <laughs> right, weight. Weight is not a behavior. Weight is yeah. a potential endpoint from behaviors. And our bodies change over, over time as the result of behaviors, even just over our, our lifetime. You know, whether someone's growing or going through menopause or, you know, mm-hmm. people can sometimes lose weight later in life from what we call sarcopenia, they lose muscle. So weight, weight is an endpoint or weight is something that changes for a multitude of reasons. And a lot of times it's not in our control. So, trying to control it is often very difficult, and often not not positive, you know, yeah. in a lot of ways. Well, so, and I think, and that, please, sorry, I think looking but, at it, looking looking at it as as what it is is it something that may may fluctuate as mm-hmm. a result of of different variables, but focusing on it and trying to force your way to change something um, can be problematic.
0: Well, I think I feel like you've kind of address some of those like I I heard you talk about the weight cycling that can go on in that kind of more traditional and I mean to be honest I think most people who are going to listen to this episode know exactly what that's like whether they are managing type 2 diabetes or not just that idea of intentional weight loss in most cases research shows us leads to weight fluctuation or weight cycling up and down up and down up and down which has metabolic consequences right very interesting in the context of uh, a metabolic endocrine dysfunction as diabetes. and then right. I guess when we're looking at that weight centric model, would you kind of say that the the weight cycling and the weight stigma is what's left out of the conversation or out of the picture rather is that is that kind of what's missing, do you think?
3: Yeah, I would say so, and I think the research also is missing. It. so when I listen to other people that are following this haze weight inclusive model, people that really know the research, like Jeff Hunger, you had on and Reagan Chastain and all these brilliant researchers, they talk about, you know, when you do a study that doesn't control for something like weight stigma and weight cycling, you're missing a huge, huge component of like what may be affecting, you know, quote unquote, in these studies, these subjects, metabolic function, so when you don't look at these variables and you just say, oh, well, someone lost weight and their blood sugar got better, mm-hmm. what were the behaviors that were causing that? Or if someone at a higher BMI has a higher inflammatory marker or mm-hmm. uncontrolled diabetes without looking at these other variables, like even economics or stress and all these other variables that fitness is sometimes not included all these variables play a role. So it's these correlations, okay, but not causation.
0: Yeah. And, and they are, I think the more that I'm sure you found this as well, the more that you go into the full picture here. And I mean, we could put in lots of different medical conditions and illnesses, but let's kind of just stick with diabetes because it's obviously incredibly common, right? Right. This, I, I, you know, I've seen it all the time. I, I see it, at, at me almost defensively, which is really interesting from folks who, the way that I view it, have been really kind of disenfranchised and disempowered by the medical model and yet are so stuck in weight-centric themselves that, you know, so I guess what I'm alluding to here is I'll see. it's interesting you mentioned A1C, which is obviously a, um, I'll, I'll actually let you explain that I'm I'm not going to explain this to an endocrinologist. You could kind of
3: just... Go I'm sure you would nail it. it it's It's just a three-month blood sugar average. So um, glucose binds to red blood cells, and the average lifespan of a red blood cell is about three months. So when someone goes for an A1C test, there's a way to extrapolate from that blood test what the average sugar has been yeah. over that three months.
0: So it's, it's really... Um... I guess for for folks who've ever had a blood test, it's, it's blood test is obviously a snapshot in time. So this marker is giving us a little bit more time to look at what, what's happening in the body through that period of time. Right.
3: Correct. Correct.
0: So coming back to what I see online, it's always, well, often I shouldn't say always is, Hey, you know, when I lost weight, my A1C was so good or so improved. Right. And, mm-hmm. I don't disbelieve that. I don't if someone says that I believe them, right?
3: Totally. There's nothing there's nothing wrong Yeah. with someone losing weight, but how did they lose the weight? Yeah. Number 1 was was it because they decided, "Hey, I love yoga, I love spin, I love Zumba, yeah. and also, you know, I'm going to incorporate more fruits and vegetables into my diet and I'm going to get more sleep." Mm. And yes, weight went down the same way the A1C went down. Mm. Or were they restricting for three months and, you know, developing some issue, body image issues and not getting enough calories and all these things. And where is there anyone going to see you going to be in a couple of years? We don't know. Right. Um, but when we so, take that,
0: that kind of limited approach to just that marker, that's all we see. Right. I guess that's, that's that kind of takeaway here of like the weight inclusive health at every size approach is, is looking at the full picture. Would that be fair to say?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think people are very quick to grab onto positive benefits that come about from weight loss. So if someone loses weight and their blood sugar got better, it's the weight loss Mm -hmm. that caused the improvement in blood sugar. But what about all the other variables that went on and you can look at weight and A1C side by side and Mm -hmm. what are the behaviors that led Mm -hmm. to that?
1: Absolutely.
0: Because
3: that's really the end. Those are the end points. That's not the systems approach that got to that point.
0: It's so interesting, you know, without, I know this is maybe unimaginable for, for all of us, for you and I as well, but without that kind of anti-fat reality that is our world and, and for as long as my life has been our, our societal perspective and view, that just would not probably be the case. I mean, look, maybe it'd be something else. I don't know, maybe we'd swap one bias for another bias. I'm not sure, but that the idea, I, I so concur with that latch on to, oh, but look what happened when I lost weight. It was so great. And from those who have faced significant, which we kind of have touched on, significant stigma living in a fat body or disabled body to to have, that context of the weight loss actually means so much more potentially in their lives, right? And so
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's something that maybe you and I can't, can't get. We haven't lived it, right? But it, it's also another piece of the puzzle, I guess, is, is kind of one, what I wanted to place that we, I think, alarmingly just have such a limited perspective on what influences wellbeing generally. I don't love to say health, yes. Doctor Greg. I don't love to say.
3: Right. <laughs> I think right. it's a loaded right. word,
0: right? Um, right. But it's really great that someone coming into your care for whatever condition um, with their endocrine system is going to receive support, medication, advice, whatever's relevant to their, you know, their situation. I guess the the thing that really stands out is not having that approach from their doctor, from you in this, in this case of your weight, therefore you cause this. And I think that's possibly the most damaging part of the weight centric is You caused everything because you got fat for instance, or you are fat for instance.
3: Right. I mean, I learned so much from my patients, yeah, um, yeah, good, good and bad, you know, just listening to their experiences and, and having them tell me that, they've avoided going to see doctors because of things like this, or that they've gone out of appointments and literally sat in their car and cried. And it's just heartbreaking. And I I feel strongly that that's not the intention of the clinicians. It's just the, it's the training it's society, the research on the percentage of first year medical students that have negative attitudes about people in larger bodies is unbelievable i mean it's like 70 percent or whatever think that patients in larger bodies are gonna not take their medications the same way that they don't move their body all this stuff and then you know you go through medical school and training it just gets ingrained of course and that's not necessarily their intention and they i don't think they want to i know they don't want to make patients cry it's just we have to unlearn or obviously change the culture and create a different environment that can take better care of people.
1: I'm here for that.
0: And I know you are too. Thank you.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, we're, we're learning as we go. And, yeah. and obviously, you know, obviously, but this is not my ex- lived experience as like a white thin male, you know, mm-hmm. so I have to listen to my patients. I have to be on social media and all this stuff and, and pick up, you know, on what's going on and hopefully, um, provide provide the care and help train and teach my colleagues and the people that are coming up in the medical community to to do a better job of it.
0: I want to wrap up this episode, the two parter on Hayes, with two client emails I received, and I'm going to share it with consent. These are two emails that showcase what is possible when folks are truly and holistically supported, when folks are treated with compassion and dignity when folks are empowered to care for themselves on their own terms. And especially, especially if you're still unsure, if this Hayes framework is really about health, you're going to want to hear this. Hi, Nadia. I had an appointment with a new gynecologist today who was amazing and very respectful of my wishes. It's been noted in my chart at that practice that I don't wish to be weighed unless I need to be for medical reasons. And the experience made me feel a bit more hopeful about finding a primary care provider. So for those of us outside of the States, that is a general practitioner or a GP. And this is someone who had not been to a doctor, who was avoiding, understandably, going to see a new doctor, going to specialists, which sometimes is not going to be supportive of our health. We sometimes really need to go to doctors, some of us more than others. But if you've experienced medical fat phobia, of course, you're not going to be comfortable or safe to go. So this is what happens when, unfortunately, they that she did have to advocate for herself. But when people are empowered, that they know they have options, they know what it's like to care for themselves, and they feel more able to speak up with support behind them. So this is the second email. Hi, Nadia. I wanted to share something that's happened recently. I have flat feet you know, like differently structured feet. And it's caused me on and off pain my whole life. Whenever I walk a lot, whenever I do cardio, basically whenever I use my feet a lot, I get this sharp pain in the arches of my feet. And off the rack shoes don't fit my feet well. I've never owned shoes that I'm 100% comfortable in wearing. And lately this pain has gotten to my heels. Usually it goes away, but this time it has persisted. Because of working with you, I took the self-care route. I found an amazing podiatrist. He made me custom insoles that I I can wear inside shoes and magically my pain has disappeared. I realized how often I've ignored pain because I thought weight loss would fix it. This time, because of all the knowledge and self-compassion I've gained, I found a solution that's going to significantly improve my quality of life. I can now dance pain-free. I'm so happy. I wanted to share so that I can thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Wow. Every human is inherently worthy and every human deserves ethical, compassionate and dignified healthcare. It really shouldn't be this hard for all of the links and notes from today's exploration of what you need to know about Hayes part two, including how to find all of my amazing guests. Cause you want to do that head to my website, nadiafelsch.com forward slash podcast. You can also find the link in your podcast player. Thank you for joining me. See you next time.